Hello and welcome to the Traveling Historian Podcast. My name is Casey. I am the Traveling Historian. And today we are going to be talking about Cleopatra, the one and only. Now, just as a reminder, before we get started, we are active on Patreon. So you can go ahead and look us up at patreon.com slash traveling historian. And we are getting some nice uh, patron tiers set up for you. So the first will be exclusive content where you'll be getting some special podcasts uh, about a month or so before everyone else. That doesn't mean we won't be releasing podcasts, you know, in between. It means you'll get them early. The next tier up, you're actually going to be able to help select topics and suggestions for future topics that you would like to see discussed on the podcast. That being said, let's get started with today's subject, Cleopatra. We've seen Cleopatra depicted many different times, you know, in film and in history, and she is probably one of the most enigmatic but famous figures from the ancient era, from the classical era. We've heard a lot about ancient Egypt. That was probably one of our early historical topics that we discussed in school or heard about, read in books. But at this point in time, we're talking about the first century BC, meaning from 100 to 0. And obviously, of course, the ancients didn't record history that way. That's the modern calendar that we apply to it. But the earliest dynasty that we have being recorded in Egypt had begun 3,000 years previously before Cleopatra was even on the scene. And by the time of the first century BC, the Great Pyramid, the one that we associate with ancient Egypt, is already over 2,000 years old. So when Cleopatra is born, the pyramids are already ancient relics. She would have looked at them almost no differently than we would today, that these relics of the ancient past. And Egypt itself hadn't really been independent for a long period. It had fallen under the control of the Persians, the Assyrians at different points in time. It even succumbed briefly to an invasion from Nubia down in the south in modern day Sudan. But the greatest influence that had come over Egypt in recent memory was that of the Ptolemies, who were Macedonians, who were loyal to Alexander the Great when he came through and conquered Egypt in the 320s and followed it up with Hellenization, this Greek influence of culture. Now, after Alexander's death, this empire of his, which stretched all the way from Greece to India, shattered. It broke apart into a number of different quarreling factions under control of different generals of his. One of these was his general Ptolemy, who took control of Egypt. Now, what this begins is the Ptolemaic period, which sees a blending of Greek and Egyptian culture. The Ptolemies it's important to remember, are Greeks. So they're from Macedon, and they rule from from Alexandria on the northern coast of Egypt, which is still there today. And that city was built to be one of Greek power, a center for learning and teaching. The Greeks didn't really plan on, like, outbreeding the native Egyptians. That wasn't their goal. But they wanted this definitive showing of power. And the city of Alexandria, founded by Alexander himself, was the perfect way to do that. It contained two of the greatest wonders of the ancient world in the form of the Pharos Lighthouse of Alexandria and the Library of Alexandria, both of which are destroyed later on in history. We don't really know where they are. Uh, the light, We have ideas about where they are, but we have no ruins of them. While the Ptolemies were Greek, 
They respected Egyptian culture and customs and continued many of the traditions the Egyptians had long believed in. So taking the title of Pharaoh, they didn't adopt any Greek titles for themselves because the Greeks are numerically much more inferior to the native Egyptians. And if they went around just trying to bully them and tell them, ah, your culture is awful, we don't want to deal with it, that would have led to unrest, which would have probably led to the Ptolemies being killed by the native Egyptians. One of these practices that the, the Ptolemies take on is incest among the pharaonic line, the pharaohs. The practice of marrying brother and sister or marrying cousins to keep bloodlines pure. Uh, this is not something that the Greeks practiced, and the Greeks are absolutely horrified when the Ptolemies adopt this practice. They see it as abhorrent. But for the Egyptians, that was a normal practice for the pharaohs to practice. And so Egypt itself at this period in time, which it's important not to look at it from a modern geopolitical standpoint, we have to look at Egypt as it was. So Egypt serves as this vital hub, not only for trade, but also for agriculture that supplied the rest of the Mediterranean with grain. Egypt becomes one of the most valuable provinces to the later Roman and Eastern Roman empires because a lot of the grain that is produced in the Mediterranean comes from Egypt. And I know that doesn't exactly, that doesn't jive with our current understanding of Egypt, thinking of it as a desert or not thinking much of it. But at the time, Egypt has a lot of lush areas right around the Nile that are used for grain production. Any trade that's coming from Central Africa is mostly going to pass through Egypt, uh, where we have the Sinai now and Lebanon and Israel and Palestine. It has to pass through there to get into Mesopotamia and beyond. Likewise, any trade that's coming from the east, from China and India, will either pass through Anatolia, where modern-day Turkey is, or goes through Egypt. And so Egypt is this vital hub of population transfers, of trade going through, of grain production, all of it. And this makes Egypt this cosmopolitan location where you could have found people of all stripes and colors living together, blending together, doing trade and business. So Cleopatra herself, she is not the first Cleopatra, so she's actually Cleopatra the seventh, and she's born in 69 BC to the ruling pharaoh Ptolemy the twelfth. Alutes is his name. She would have been tutored from a young age by a man named Philostros, who would teach her philosophy, oration, and she actually would have studied at larger educational institutions in Alexandria. And that might come as a shock, but in among Egyptians especially, having a strong woman be in charge was not something you it was not something unheard of. It was relatively widely practiced by the ruling elite, especially to have intelligent, strong, and charismatic women be in positions of power. That's a whole topic we can discuss for, discuss for another time, but the legal standing of women in ancient Egypt is very unique for the ancient world. For Greeks, on the other hand, the Greeks were pretty sexist, and that's unfortunately where we get a lot of where modern-day divisions of what men should do and what women should do come from ancient Greece. Um, and a lot of the, the the classical thinkers that we think of were very, very problematic. Um, if you actually read a lot of their works about, you know, womenly duties of staying at home and doing things for her, their man. Uh, and that's what gets adopted for Western culture, not the Egyptian model. But 
for the Egyptians, they saw this as a good step, that she was being tutored by someone who was competent and capable to train her to be a successful leader. As a part of that training, she would have learned to speak multiple languages, um, which was, like I said, necessary given the cultural center that Egypt and Alexandria are. You would have to understand people of different languages and different cultures if they're coming to try and trade with you or negotiate with you because you'd have Latins from Italy, you could have Greeks from Greece, you could have people speaking a Celtish language from anywhere from Spain and Gaul beyond that. Uh, you could also have Aramaic from the nearby lands of the Levant, etc, etc, etc. Some of the known languages that we know for a fact that she spoke were Greek, Egyptian, Ethiopian, Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, and Latin, among a bunch of others that we suspect she was able to write. And while we don't have a lot of her writing, it's presumed that she also knew how to write in most of those languages as well. So a lot of times it feels like I can only speak one language, <laughs> or barely one language. So for having Cleopatra being able to speak all of these other languages, it's telling a lot of her character that she is incredibly intelligent and she knows her way around. Society at the time would have been pluralistic and incredibly vibrant, but also incredibly stringent. There were segregated neighborhoods where different groups of people were would reside. Um, the most diverse population centers would have lived in the urban areas, which shouldn't come as a surprise to us looking at cities today. So while you have Alexandria and Cairo, these big cities, these urban centers, they would have held the most diverse populations. But in the countryside, in smaller towns and cities, they would have been majority of native Egyptians. And much like they did in previous dynasties, the, the priestly class enjoyed favorable treatment among the royal family. Now, when the Greeks take over, that kind of blends a lot of propaganda against them that they're selling out, essentially, that they are just simply going to the highest bidder, that they're just Greeks that are, they're selling out to them, that they're betraying their, their kin, their countrymen. The priests don't really care because they're making the money and they get to keep their positions of power. And Cleopatra's position itself was almost a feat of luck because her father, Ptolemy Twelfth. He begins his reign in 80 BC, but this is only because the previous pharaoh had died leaving no heir. And Ptolemy Twelfth, Cleopatra's father, was the illegitimate son of another Ptolemy, and him, and along with a couple of his brothers, had been sent into exile in Anatolia, and then they were called back to Egypt to basically participate as being pharaohs because they had no one else, and they said, hey, you're, you're good enough, you're a Ptolemy, come back. And so... This leads to an interesting political situation because the previous pharaoh had been very friendly to the Romans. And actually on his, his deathbed, in his will, he leaves Egypt to Rome. He says, when I die, Rome will take over Egypt. The Egyptians don't really want that, neither do the Ptolemies. And so there's a concern among the Egyptians that when they say, well, we don't actually want to give Egypt to Rome, we want to give it to the next Ptolemy in line, that the Romans will try and intervene. The Romans don't, because the Romans are preoccupied with other matters on the Italian peninsula. And so they choose not to intervene in Ptolemy XII's crowning as the new pharaoh. And this seems uncharacteristically nonchalant of the Romans, but the Romans will end up coming back into the play later on. And Ptolemy is described as being a weak and self-indulgent man in historical literature, with his favorite activity being to play the lute, the flute. <laughs> And that's where he gets the, the nickname, the Alute, at the end of his name, Ptolemy the Twelfth Alute, which is the flute player. 
And that scene is kind of being him being more feminine almost, that it's kind of saying that he's rather play the flute than actually do things of political note. But the rise and power projection of Rome, like I mentioned earlier, meant that it was a valuable ally for the Egyptians to have. As much as they didn't want the Romans to take control of Egypt, they wanted the Romans as their ally because they had seen what the Romans were capable of as a military power and thought, well, if we can have them as an ally, that's better than having them as an enemy. So Ptolemy XII actually makes a visit to Rome itself, which that's something that doesn't get discussed enough, I feel like, in ancient literature, or at least in modern teachings of historical records, that there would be trips back and forth, that these weren't isolated entities, that rulers from other states would visit other countries to make diplomatic meetings, that there was a cross-communication that would happen constantly. Uh, they weren't, like I said, isolated bubbles, and much in the way that we have current rulers of states now going to visit other countries to pursue diplomatic and military initiatives. Same thing at then. Not much has changed other than how it's done. So Ptolemy XII visits Rome, and he actually pays a really hefty bribe to Pompey and Caesar, the two leading politicians at the time, to make a formal alliance between Rome and Egypt. Ptolemy doesn't exactly have all that money right away, so this actually puts Egypt into a little bit of debt with the Romans, which will come into play later. Uh, and a lot of the Egyptians don't like this. They see it as Ptolemy kowtowing to the Romans and kind of being subservient to them a little bit. This really comes to a head, though, in 58 BC, when the Romans take control of Cyprus, which is an island north of Egypt and just south of Anatolia which was actually under the control of Ptolemy's brother. Now, the Romans take it. His brother is dead. And he really doesn't make any comment toward it, one way or the other. And this is the the tipping point for her father and his opinion with the crowd, because the crowd sees this as the ultimate sign of betrayal, that he wouldn't stand up for not only another Egyptian, but for his own brother, that he would just let the Romans walk all over him and not do anything about it. And this leads to a popular uprising against his rule, which forces him to flee the city and to flee Egypt. And we're going to kind of skip over it a little bit, but he ends up gaining an army with the help of the Romans and makes his return in 55 BC and retakes the throne for himself. And then fast forward again for a few years when Ptolemy XII dies in 51 BC, so only a few years after he reclaims his throne, he will make his son Ptolemy Thirteenth and Cleopatra, his heirs, to jointly rule together. And at the time when her father dies and she is made basically co-pharaoh, she's 18 and her brother is 11 years old. And they are married. So, again, this is (laughs) a common practice. It sounds very weird to us now. But Cleopatra was married to her brother, as was the custom. And we're going to take a little bit of a tour to discuss this for a second. For Cleopatra herself, we don't know who her mother was exactly. Um, And there's little evidence to think that there was Egyptian blood in her her veins, essentially. Most likely, based on Ptolemaic custom, was that either her mother was her father's cousin or his sister. And like I said, a lot of that inbreeding was a tradition held from ancient Egypt. So the easiest and probably most recognizable claim of it is uh, King Tut, King Tutankhamun, that he actually had a club foot, and a lot of the Egyptian 
hieroglyphs and their depictions, you'll notice that they have distended stomachs from inbreeding, essentially that it leads them having physical deformities. And King Tut, we believe most likely that he died from a blood disease because of the inbreeding that he was unable to sufficiently defend himself from disease after he had been injured in an accident. But Cleopatra doesn't seem to have any of those malignant features <laughs> associated with the inbreeding. Um, and we're also going to take a time because it's important to talk about it because everyone always talks about it. What would she have looked like? There are different historical depictions of Cleopatra. However, it's important to remember and look at when those depictions were made. Because some of the more famous examples, for example, there's one in Pompeii, which depicts Cleopatra, that has her with his pale skin and brown hair and curly hair. But that depiction of her was made almost 100 years after she had died. And that comes into play with a lot of different historical accounts of historical figures, is that we see these accounts being written way after the fact. And so we always have to take the breaks there and say, wait, just a moment, and let's see what might be a play here. And much in the way that modern society has its own depictions of beauty and what is physically attractive, so do the ancients. And for the Egyptians, this would have been for the wealthy to have golden skin, um, this more olive tone, but not so dark skin. The depictions that we have in Egyptian tombs of those brownish red skin tones, those were commonly associated with the field workers. The same way that in later centuries, paleness is associated with beauty because it shows that you're rich and not working in the field, and having a tan is actually associated with being poor because you have to be outside all the time, which is completely reverse now, that if you have a nice lush tan, that shows that you, you know, you're working out, I guess, outside. Uh, but the Romans would have viewed pale skin as being something attractive. There were accounts of women taking milk baths to make their skin more smooth and milky white. So Cleopatra, like I said, I mentioned it before that we don't think she had any Egyptian ancestry in her body. So she probably would have looked like an ancient Greek would have. She probably would have been had a, an olive skin tone, not quote unquote white, she wouldn't have been a Nordic European, you know, with this pale white skin that, let's throw that out the window right there. She would not have been that. Um, she probably would have had something close to a golden skin tone, which was the expected form of beauty that an Egyptian woman was supposed to have. Um, she probably would have worn different forms of makeup. And this is also something that shows in the convolutity of what beauty depictions are that the Romans, which is where we got a lot of our depictions of Cleopatra and our record records of Cleopatra from the Romans wanted people to wear makeup to, you know, make their cheeks a little flush, but also make themselves paler, but not too much makeup because too much makeup was reserved for prostitutes. And so the Romans have this own fine line of uh, beauty standards. So like I said, Cleopatra was for all intents and purposes, She's a Greek, so we can't expect her to have that dark reddish-brown skin tone that native Egyptians would have had, but she probably would have had a golden olive skin tone. And like I said, that's that's think of her in that way. So she's not, like I said, this Nordic white European with blonde hair and blue eyes. It's incorrect to think that, because that always comes up in discussion, and I believe currently they are... I can't remember if it's confirmed or if it's rumored that they're making another movie focusing on Cleopatra herself, and there's 
discussion about who should be playing her because she's always been historically portrayed as by a white woman in cinema and looking at the records now people are wondering what she would have looked like and this is the last thing i'll say about this we also have to remember the demographics of the region so you can look at egypt today to get a rough idea of what people would have looked like but the modern day population of egypt is arab and we wouldn't we would have had arab people living in egypt at the time but the large population of egypt still would have been native egyptian the later Arab conquests that come centuries later is what ends up transforming that population into the largely Arab one that we have today. And like I said, Egypt is a cosmopolitan place. So you would have had people of all different skin tones and colors. The, you would have had the Nubians to the south, which are who are black, living in Egypt and trading with Egypt. So you would have had people of black skin tone there. You would have had Europeans of different shades, you know, of olive skinned people trading there you would have had greeks you would have native egyptians people that were intermarrying among them which depending on where you're living in ancient egypt is a different problem because sometimes you aren't allowed to (laughs) but egypt is this cosmopolitan place at the time and so it's important to remember that no one person looks the same so without seeing her in reality going back in time and looking at her you can't ever have a hundred percent what she looked like same thing with egyptians because anyone, you can look at people of different skin tones and you can have someone who is of African origin who is incredibly dark and you can have someone who is incredibly light skinned. You can have someone who is of Arab descent who can be confused with a white European and you can have people of Arab descent who have such dark skin tones they can be confused as having African origin. And so skin tone itself is not a concrete thing. But I digress on that point. <laughs> like I said... So Cleopatra would have had an olive golden skin tone, most likely. Back to the narrative, though. (laughs) Now, when she comes into power, there are a bunch of different domestic issues that she immediately has to deal with. And she wouldn't have been ruling by herself. Her, Her brother, more than her, would have required a lot of advisors to tow along with them and say, here's how things have been done. Work with her. She's still the ultimate authority especially being the older of the two. But she has to deal with a bunch of domestic issues that she had to take care of, including her father's debt to Rome. So she inherits this massive debt from her dad. Um, There's a famine that's caused by a drought coupled with a low-flowing flooding of the Nile because Egypt's grain production relies on the Nile overflowing its banks and basically spreading water out to the nearby areas and distributing soil that helps with fertilization. So Cleopatra's plate's already full. There's also the concern, on top of everything else, that there are a number of Roman troops who are no longer employed, that they are ex-soldiers, that were left in Egypt uh, as a result of when her father raised an army to come take back the city and Egypt, that now these people had no jobs, but they're essentially brigands walking around and doing whatever they want and taking whatever they want. And so she has to deal with them. So fast forward one year. And in 50 BC, the the Roman proconsul, the governor of Syria, whose name is Marcus Bibulus, he will send two of his eldest sons to Egypt to try and negotiate with the unemployed soldiers. So the Romans don't want to deal with them any as much as Cleopatra does. And if they are still in a formal alliance, they have to try and work through this problem. 
The unfortunate thing is when they arrive in Egypt, they're captured, tortured, and killed by those soldiers. And there's some evidence to suggest that Cleopatra might have encouraged it a little bit. Uh, She attempts to send those culprits to Bibulus as a token of goodwill, but the proconsul will return them to Cleopatra and chastises her for trying to circumvent Roman law because she essentially sends them to Bibulus and says, here, you can kill them. Have This is my tribute to you. And he says, whoa, we have a way of doing things. You can't just do that. Um, so he returns them to her, but things are still kind of on an even keel as far as relationships are concerned. And starting in August of 51 BC, so going back a little bit, we have official state documents which list Cleopatra as the sole ruler of Egypt, which again, when she is crowned, she is also crowned as the co-ruler with her brother. They're supposed to have equal power. But when she starts marking official state seals with her own and says, I'm in charge, that's a a diss against her brother and saying, he's just a kid, I'm in charge. And so this kind of begins the the serious conflict between the two um, as these allied camps form. Some people ally themselves behind Cleopatra, Others ally themselves with her brother, Ptolemy the 13th. And we have this quasi-civil war that starts bubbling to the surface, where you have gangs from each other's camps kind of beating each other up in the streets of Alexandria. But Egypt, like I said, this is not a bubble world. This is not out without outside influences. And the Romans, who had had a long-term interest in Egypt, because Rome is still getting a lot of grain from Egypt, and they had helped her father retake the throne of Egypt. And so the Romans are heavily interested in what's going on in Egypt. And so in the summer of 49 BC, the son of Pompey, who is again one of those eminent political figures in Rome, whose name is Gnaeus Pompeius, he will come to Egypt seeking military aid on behalf of his father, who's fighting in Greece during the civil war with Caesar. So when we have the podcast with Caesar talking about the civil war and him and Pompey are fighting in Greece. At the same time, Pompey's sons are going to Egypt to ask for aid, to say, hey, you know, you kind of owe us, uh, why don't you come send us military aid to to help us out? And there's an agreement between actually both parties, despite the fact that, like I said, there's gangs supporting each claimant, beating each other's up in the street. Both Cleopatra and Ptolemy actually agreed together to send military aid to Pompey. And this is one of the last official documents that we have where they basically co-sign it together as joint rulers to send military aid. So the Egyptian forces go off to go help Pompey. Spoiler, it doesn't go very well for Pompey. Pompey still loses. Um, But during that time, Cleopatra's forces are beginning to lose the fight against her brother which forces her to withdraw from Alexandria toward Thebes, which is in the center of Egypt. So she withdraws from the coast toward the inner heart of Egypt. And Cleopatra is able to make her way to Roman uh, Syria, much like her father did before her. And she raises an army to try and retake Egypt and Alexandria from her brother. But she's met by fierce resistance on the way there, and she actually is not able to storm Alexandria itself. And she camps outside of the Nile Delta, which is a bunch of little rivers that extend into the Mediterranean from the Nile. So she's camping out there with her forces, unable to make any further headway. And again, because things don't happen in a vacuum, while that's happening, Pompey, who has been defeated in Greece, he flees to Lebanon, where he is trying to gather his forces and his supporters. 
and his advisors tell him that this area is weak, but the Pompeys have a long-term friendship with the Ptolemies in Egypt. And so they say this it'll be a safer choice for us to head there to try and rebuild our forces and continue the fight against Caesar. So Ptolemy the uh, 13th learns of this, that Pompey is heading to him. And he worries that allowing Pompey into their country during a time of civil war in Rome will just make Caesar attack Egypt as seeing it as being a culprit aiding his foe. And so Ptolemy the 13th and all of his wisdom, um, along with his advisors say, well, why don't you kill Pompey and that will be better. And so Pompey and his ships arrive off the coast of Egypt and there's a little bit of a diplomatic mission that says, okay, you guys can come ashore. And so Pompey and a couple of his supporters take a rowboat off of their ship and get onto the Egyptian shore where a bunch of Egyptian soldiers and assassins murder him along with the other Romans, which was Ptolemy XIII's big, uh, big move that he thought would go over well because Ptolemy believed that if he killed Pompey, he would demonstrate his power and his resolve um, in the conflict and that if he presented it to Caesar, that Caesar would see, oh, he is in charge. He is an authoritative person and that I shouldn't do anything about this, that he helped me out. However, when the head is delivered to Caesar, along with Pompey's signet ring, because time passes for Caesar to arrive in Egypt, so the head isn't as in, isn't in as wonderful condition as when it was freshly chopped from the, uh, the, the stump of his neck. So the signet ring is that proof that it is actually him. Caesar is not happy, and he weeps over this. And Caesar is not happy. He dismisses uh, the Egyptians, and he will take up residence inside the royal palace of Alexandria. But like I said, Caesar is not happy that Ptolemy killed Pompey, who, while being his rival, Caesar still considered somewhat of a, to be a friend. So Caesar is brooding in the palace of Alexandria, and Caesar actually orders both parties, both Cleopatra and Ptolemy, to disband their armies as kind of this, no, you're done fighting now, we're in charge here, you're stopping this. Ptolemy, though looks at his forces, and Ptolemy has about fifteen to 20,000 soldiers under his command at that moment. Caesar only has about 3,000. And Ptolemy says, well, why do I have to listen to him? I have way more people than him. And so Ptolemy decides to march his army toward Alexandria to take out Caesar while he has the opportunity to. Cleopatra, who has still been camped out on the Nile Delta right near Alexandria, realizes this is her opportunity. And there are different accounts of this, this meeting. The most famous depiction of it has Cleopatra being hidden inside of a carpet and being carried into Alexandria, into the palace, because if she had been caught by her brother's supporters, they would have killed her. There's this fanciful depiction of her being, the the rug being unrolled and her revealing herself to Caesar. And she manages to convince Caesar to support her. And she does this with her, not only her intelligence, but her physical beauty as well, that she seduces Caesar. And upon hearing this, Ptolemy, as you can imagine, is quite incensed. And he attempts to cause a riot in the city um, against Caesar, but he fails. (laughs) And Caesar attempts to defuse the situation, but Ptolemy's forces, far outnumbering Caesar, decide to attack. And during the rioting phase, Caesar actually is able to capture Ptolemy himself. But during those negotiations with the opposing forces to try and mitigate a conflict, Ptolemy is actually able to escape Caesar's clutches and goes on to lead his own army. 
and Caesar and Ptolemy the Thirteenth would fight during the Battle of the Nile. After Ptolemy is released, he's able to lead his forces and besiege the palace in Alexandria, with both Caesar and Cleopatra, his two political enemies, inside. However, he's not quick enough, and Roman reinforcements are able to arrive and push their forces back, and this culminates in the Battle of the Nile, where the Romans are able to prevail, and Ptolemy Thirteenth will later drown within the week of that battle trying to cross the Nile River. So Ptolemy Thirteenth is out of the picture, Cleopatra's rival, and Cleopatra now has her new patron, has her new ally, because Cleopatra, again, is an incredibly cunning and intelligent person. So she would not have seen herself as being subservient to Caesar. She would have tried to, she would have recognized the situation at hand, but she would not have seen herself as being subservient to him. And the two of those would begin a torrid love affair um, that would result in a son being born in June of 47 BC under the name Caesarion. And you can actually see inscriptions of them in Egypt with Caesarion on, on the uh, on the walls of these monuments. Cleopatra would make these numerous numerous announcements about the parentage of the child that would say, "I this is the son of Caesar, this is the son of Caesar, because at this point, Caesar's won the civil war and he's in charge of Rome, the most powerful empire in the Mediterranean. And while she's proclaimed that, Caesar says nothing. He does not want to be openly associating saying that that's my kid because he's still married at this point and so he doesn't want this scandal to break out that being said she would travel to rome and stay at caesar's private villa in the city with her co-ruler who is been reappointed who's no longer her brother um ptolemy the 14th so he is basically a young boy at this time and she would actually remain there until after Caesar's assassination. But while she's there, she has this crowd following her. She is this exotic and incredibly awe-inspiring person. And there's records from different historians that say how the fashion in Rome changed after Cleopatra visited, where women would start painting their eyelids with green uh, hues to mimic her style. And there's different people who will visit her, different Roman politicians. And I believe it's Cicero who actually visits her and he complains that she's arrogant, that he doesn't like her because she's very full of herself. And part of that probably comes from Cleopatra's, again, own self-confidence that she has to project this extra confidence to herself because not only is she a woman in Roman society where women are second-class citizens, but also she knows the situation that she is in that she has to make sure she is strong and not seen as weak to be killed off like her brother had been. But like I said, she stays there well until after Caesar's assassination, which is, again, something that doesn't get talked about ever, where when you learn about Caesar's assassination, you never hear that Cleopatra herself was in the city when he's assassinated. And she will flee the city a little bit afterwards because, again, she doesn't want to necessarily get embroiled in everything. She'll attempt to assist in the civil war against the liberators, Cassius and Brutus, um, with Mark Antony being left in control of the eastern territories of Rome, while Octavian, who is Caesar's adopted nephew, will control in the west. And Mark Antony will set up his headquarters in Anatolia. But Mark Antony, according to his own stories, um, he had served in a cavalry detachment under her father, 
when he marched back into Egypt to reclaim the throne, and that's when he had first met Cleopatra, and he said he fell in love basically at first sight, that when he had saw her, he loved her immediately. And so when he makes up his headquarters in Anatolia, he starts sending letter after letter to Cleopatra to try and get her to come see him. And she rebuffs him for the most that she's kind of like, I don't no, 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 no. And eventually she's advised by her advisors that Mark Anthony is one of the most powerful people in Rome. It might be useful to just go basically just go see him, you know, go entertain him. And it's very clear from the beginning that Mark Anthony wanted her romantically, that he didn't necessarily see her as only a political ally. She was, that helped him, but he genuinely seemed like he was physically attracted to her. So she goes and visits him, and the two of them enter into a relationship. From historical records, it seems more like instead of Cleopatra suddenly falling in love with Mark Anthony, she sees Mark Anthony as a tool, that she sees... Oh, this idiot's love struck essentially that he'll do whatever I want. And so Cleopatra realizes his usefulness and she will throw these lavish parties with him aboard her, her boat. Um, and Mark Anthony will awe at this treatment like, wow, this is how you guys get treated? Because she is more or less what the Romans would consider a king. And the Romans don't like that. And so this opulent treatment that Cleopatra is accustomed to that Mark Anthony is not. He is is loving it. He's loving that lifestyle. And she will bring him to Egypt, um, where he's hailed as a hero um, for helping restore her father earlier and helping uh, restore balance to Egypt. And he enjoys this, like I said, this lavish treatment and lifestyle. Um, And they visit in 41 BC. Cleopatra recognizes that Antony, being in control of the eastern territories of the Roman Empire could potentially be used to restore former Ptolemaic territory. And so, again, it's important to know that Cleopatra's not an idiot, that she's incredibly smart. So she sees this guy who, let's face it, you know, he's being an idiot, that he's like, I, I, I love her, she's perfect, you know. And she goes, okay, that's great, but I'm still going to get what I want out of this. And she's able to successfully persuade Antony to giving her control over a number of territories, in the Roman East to restore a lot of the former Ptolemaic territories. So she's very successful at that, at successfully manipulating Antony. And by 36 BC, Cleopatra will have given birth to three of Antony's children, uh, two sons and a daughter, and will have accompanied on him on several campaigns. Um, most notably, she actually accompanies him when she is pregnant um, with one of their children during his Parthian campaign against the the Parthians, who are power in the Middle East at the time. She is pregnant with one of their children, and she will leave because she is close to term to go back to Egypt to give birth, um, not on the field of battle, um, in the inhospitable terrain. And in 34 BC, during an elaborate ceremony, uh, which followed a mock triumph, because when we discussed in the Caesar podcast, a triumph is a Roman celebration of victory. It's a military parade that that's the only point when you are allowed to bring your troops into Rome is for a military parade to successfully celebrate your military triumph. Anthony will hold a mock one in Alexandria because he's not given one in Rome. And Mark Anthony is seen as adopting a lot of the cultures of Egypt, which 
does not go over well with a lot of the Roman public and politicians that they see him engaging this opulent lifestyle, you know, taking up Egyptian customs, throwing a triumph in Alexandria. And during a ceremony following that mock triumph, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra actually marry each other. They will wed. And this gives Octavian in Rome this perfect storm of propaganda that he can just throw out there saying, look at this guy. He is, he is a traitor to Rome. He is... He is becoming an Egyptian. He is betraying us, et cetera, et cetera. And if you hadn't guessed already, the two of them were not on great terms already. But this just gives Octavian just plenty of fuel to throw on the fire. And together, Anthony and Cleopatra will travel to Greece because they sense that Octavian is ready to make a final move, that he is going to, he's preparing a war against Mark Anthony. He's preparing to eliminate him. That's all that propaganda has been leading up to. And so both Anthony and Cleopatra, they go to Greece, where they gather some of their allies and a large naval force in 32 BC. Some of the Romans believe that Cleopatra should leave for Egypt, that she should be gone, that she shouldn't be a part of this, not because she wasn't capable, but because she was a woman, that they didn't want her in a position of power over their troops. And so they said, she should go home. You should stay and lead us, Mark Anthony. But she refuses. She says, I'm staying here. Um, because she believed that Greece was crucial for the defense of Egypt. So again, she's not fighting for Rome. She's not trying to be a Roman hero. She's not trying to usurp Mark Anthony as like an empress or anything like that. Her primary concern is Egypt. And by defending Greece, she's trying to defend Egypt as this buffer area. And her refusal to leave leads to a bunch of Mark Anthony's allies leaving, that they say, we're not putting up with this. We're leaving, and they defect to Octavian as a result. Uh, Anthony at this time will also divorce his wife, and with the seizure of his will, so he had a written will that was still in Rome, and Octavian uses some political leverage to actually seize the will, which normally you would not be allowed to do before the person's dead um, for obvious reasons, but he is able to seize the will, and he reveals plans which you know, it depends on who you're talking to, might have been uh, a little bit conflated that he says in Mark Anthony's will that he's trying to declare Caesarion the heir to Caesar, that this open challenge to Octavian's authority and the authority of the Senate. And with this Cassus Belli, this cause for war, Octavian declares war on Cleopatra specifically, does not declare war on Mark Anthony in 31 BC. And this is because he's trying to paint this as this is Cleopatra's doing, that she has corrupted Mark Anthony, that she is the real enemy here, because he doesn't want to see it as him attacking another Roman, even though Octavian knows full well that that's what he's doing. Because again, Octavian is also not an idiot. He is incredibly smart and intelligent by all records of him. And so he knows that if he goes after Cleopatra, he's also going to be going after Mark Anthony, knocking two birds out with one stone, essentially. And there's disagreement in Mark Anthony's camp where some of them want to launch an attack on Italy itself from Greece. But Cleopatra overrules this proposal. She uses her leverage and says, nope, we're not going for a direct attack on Italy. And instead wants to pursue a defensive strategy. Because again, her goal isn't to win this war for Mark Anthony. She's not trying to do that. She wants to protect Egypt and wasting resources trying to attack Italy, which she doesn't care about, is a waste of resources in her mind. And 
again, because of this, the two of them would lose several allies during this period. And some of allies uh, of Mark Anthony will abandon the fleet and say, we're going home or we're defecting to Mark Anthony. There are some individuals who want to just abandon the idea of the fleet entirely and move inland, say, let's play to our strengths and play inland. But again, Cleopatra steps in and insists on a naval confrontation. that She wants to keep this at sea. Because again, if they retreat inland, they are across the Mediterranean away from Egypt. And that leaves Egypt vulnerable. She doesn't want to do that. And so she needs that fleet to stay where it is. Octavian, mustering his own fleet, will push in. And this will culminate in the Battle of Actium, which is the one of the larger naval engagements of the classical era in September of 31 BC off the coast of Greece. And it's during this the heat of battle that Cleopatra commands her own contingent of Egyptian ships. And Mark Anthony, before the battle, had put extra sails aboard her vessels. And so during the battle, Cleopatra's ships, which number about 60, punch through the center of Octavian's lines and flee the field that they leave. They head for Egypt. And... There's a lot of debate where a lot of the Romans will accuse her of being a coward and abandoning the Romans, that they will say, you ditched us, essentially. But because of Anthony putting those sails on before the battle had started, this seemed like it was a planned thing that they planned on leaving originally because he will join up with her quickly afterwards. And those two fleets will continue fighting for the next day or so without their leaders being there. And like I said, so Mark Anthony and Cleopatra will flee for Egypt. And Octavian successfully wins the battle. And following that defeat, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra part ways um, temporarily, with Cleopatra returning to Egypt to kind of shore up her power. And she attempts to portray Actium as this big victory for Egypt that says, no, we didn't lose, we totally won. And Anthony goes to Syria and Cyprus to try and gain more troops to try and fight Octavian. However, when he's there, the governor and the legions defect to Octavian, and Anthony retreats to Egypt. And it seems at this point that Cleopatra believed Anthony was a liability rather than an asset, and he's really outlived his usefulness at this point. There's rumor that she planned on fleeing Egypt along with Caesarion to, to India. Because again, this isn't a bubble, this isn't a bubble world. There was ships from India that would come and go trading items, and so that she wanted to flee herself, leave Caesarion in Egypt to take the throne, essentially. That he is essentially an innocent actor in this, that it was her. So she thinks that if she leaves Caesarion, he can become the ruler of Egypt while she flees. Before she can depart, though, the Romans in Syria are actually able to burn her fleet in the Red Sea before she is able to flee Egypt. And this, this cuts her off. So she, at this point, is now stuck in Egypt with the Romans closing in. And there's a number of different attempts to try and make deals with Octavian, but they all end up following falling through because Octavian wants to finish this. He doesn't want to leave this as an open-ended problem he has to deal with in the future. And as Octavian's forces begin to enter Alexandria, uh, Cleopatra will actually fake her death, that she will send a letter to Mark Anthony saying that I have killed myself, and Mark Anthony will stab himself in the stomach and commit suicide at the age of 53. Uh, Cleopatra did not kill herself. Um, they bury his body in a tomb, and Cleopatra and her three youngest children are captured by Octavian's forces as they enter the palace. And there's this famous uh, 
written record of her, which is one of the few direct words that we have from her saying that's not on her like behalf. And that she will tell Octavian, I will not be led in a triumph. That she tells him, I'm not going to become some slave that you are going to parade in Rome. Because the tradition was that any captured leaders would be led in the triumph as prisoners and then strangled at the end of it, that they would be executed in front of the crowds. And Cleopatra basically tells him point blank, that's not going to happen. That this, That's not how this story ends. And Octavian responds to her telling her that he plans on keeping her alive, that he doesn't want to kill her. Now, he doesn't say how he plans on keeping her alive or in what state. And it's at this point, both of them are living in the palace compound. That is not one big building. There's a couple of buildings in this little area. And it's at this point that Cleopatra will will die. And the popular legend is that she will commit suicide either by an asp, which is a snake, a venomous snake, or a, a needle with some poison on it. And there's different historical accounts that will give credit to either story. However, if you go beyond that, uh, because the classic telling of the story is that Cleopatra basically decides to do this, that she decides to kill herself rather than let Octavian do whatever he wants to her. Because she had tried to seduce him similarly how she had seduced Caesar and Mark Anthony, but Octavian was having none of it. And she sends a letter to Octavian that says, basically, I'm planning to kill myself. Octavian gets it, reads it, goes over to the compound, and he finds Cleopatra dead. However, depending on the, the classical story with the asp, the venom would not have taken effect over her body before he had arrived, that she would still be alive when he arrived, which is not what the story tells us. Because we don't know what killed her. You could argue that there might have been a different poison that she could have used that would have killed her quickly. Um, however, you have to debate whether or not she would have been able to gain access to those with Mark Anthony, or not Mark Anthony, but Octavian controlling the compound, that would he have let them bring in something that could be a poison to her? You could also debate, you know, she's very crafty. She could have gotten it in anyway. We see this even in our modern systems. People are able to slip things in that you would be surprised they're able to. Or a possible theory is that Octavian actually has her assassinated, that he murders her. He could have poisoned her, still all the same, but that he murders her as a means of getting her out of the way, and but also making himself look good. That he doesn't look like he murdered this woman, even though she's an enemy of his and she's a very cunning enemy, that he wanted to get her out of the way so that he wouldn't have to deal with her again in the future. And if he could paint it as a noble thing that she did and killed herself, then that just helps him. She's out of the way. She's dead. And she dies in August of 30 BC at the age of 39. So she is not old by any means, even by ancient standards. But that's a future problem Octavian doesn't have to worry about from now on. And so depending on the evidence you want to go with, you could come up with any different number of outcomes for how that played out. Uh, I believe the Discovery Channel also did a documentary on this to see exactly how that whole series would have played out. The timing because we still have the ruins of that compound, so you can count approximately how many minutes it would have taken for Octavian to walk over after getting that letter, and then comparing it to different poisons at the time and the asp, you know, so it's a very compelling uh, episode, so you should, I would definitely recommend looking that up. However, Cleopatra being dead still leaves her other children and Caesarion in the picture. The other children would have been murdered by Octavian because they are rivals to him because they are part Roman, so they could have grown up 
being potential rivals to his claim on Rome. Caesarion is not in the palace. He's not there. He is in southern Egypt. However, he is lured back to Alexandria by Octavian, who basically promises, oh, I'm not going to kill you. We're, well, we can work this out. Caesarion returns, and Octavian kills him. So Octavian basically removes all the potential rivals to his power in Egypt. And it essentially guarantees that Egypt is a Roman province from this point on. Cleopatra dies with this romantic legacy that, again, we still have it today. One of the biggest films of cinema is Mark Anthony and Cleopatra um, from like the 50s or 60s, I think it is. Um, One of the most expensive productions ever in Hollywood. Again, with renewed talks for another Cleopatra-focused film. So she has this very romantic and powerful image that lasts to today. She is this very heroic, legendary figure that, for all intents and purposes, she deserves it. She deserves that legacy. She was, by all records, incredibly intelligent, incredibly smart, and she played the best hand she could. And she managed to keep Egypt under her control for a long time, despite the circumstances saying otherwise. And so that's probably Cleopatra's greatest legacy that we're still talking about her today, that she is still remembered among the thousands of historical figures that not only her, but her as a woman was able to rise to power and rule effectively when she was. And you can take whatever lessons you want from her rule and you could do individual studies for every piece of her life and go for longer than two hours each. But that's where we're going to conclude that episode with the death of Cleopatra and the culmination of that line of Caesar and the end of an independent Egypt, which falls into the Roman control for the next few centuries. So once again, everyone, I hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, we are active on Patreon at patreon.com slash traveling historian, where, like I said, we're going to be getting those tiers up for you to not only get exclusive content with unique podcasts, but also to suggest and get what topics you would like to discuss discussed. And again, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am Augustus underscore underscore Casey on Twitter. So if you want to follow me and let people know what you think of the podcast, that's awesome. So have a wonderful day.